We are going to recap um, from our time the last couple of weeks as we've been in James, uh, because really I think it sets the time and kind of directs our time moving forward. I, I shared uh, from the beginning of this series that uh, while James is a book of wisdom, it's not a bunch of just hodgepodge little things that we grab a hold of while they are good and say, okay, I'm just going to grab that. Really, James is building out this uh, really uh, practical theology of wisdom and in light of the good news of Jesus. And so, um, man, when we jumped in, uh, when we started this series, uh, what we have looked at, what we have seen is James, who is talking to a group of people who find themselves uh, dispersed across the known world, uh, new Christians, uh, people that uh, are in a foreign land around a foreign people and who are not only being persecuted for their faith, they're also being taken advantage of financially. And so, man, they uh, seem to be in a really rough spot. And James begins the letter by count it all joy when you experience various trials, which is actually the totally opposite thing that we would normally do, right? Like we're going to count it horrendous and it's time to complain when we experience any trial at all, right? I think that, man, even as you turn on the news, even as we see what's going on in Afghanistan right now, like what, and, and hearing stories of Christians just fleeing for the mountains, right? Uh, man, what we realize is that, man, we not only are we blessed, but, man, we, um, we can hear stories of them even in the midst of it, counting it all joy. And yet we look at our own lives, and, man, oftentimes are we counting things as joy, or are we just... Uh, man, are we upset because of our first world problems? And so James lays that out, and, and we've seen, man, how we were to respond to trials in light of the good news. We, we've seen he's laid out, okay, uh, what, what it means to uh, uh, respond when we're tempted and how temptation leads to sin and sin leads to death. And then two weeks ago, we finished chapter 1 with this call to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And the way I kind of explain it is there's really two types of listening. There's listening, which is not really listening. And then there's listening, listening, where I'm listening so that I might respond in action. And I, I talked about my kiddos and oftentimes how the, usually it's just they're just listening, but they're not listening, listening. I can give them a directive and say, hey, I need you to go do this. And it's just like they stare at me and shake their head and then they leave the room and they come back. And I'm like, hey. Did you brush your teeth? And they're like, no. And I'm like, what did you do? And they're like, well, I just went and looked in the mirror. And then I needed to go get something. I'm like, no, you didn't listen to me, right? What did I tell you to do? Well, I didn't even, I didn't, they don't even know I told them to brush their teeth. And I, and I know I could talk about my kids all, but I'm the same way, right? Like my wife Haley and I will be driving and she'll be talking to me about something. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I'll just be kind of listening. And then I'll just look out in the field and I, just the most random thoughts will start popping into my head like... Wonder how far that mountain is away, or man, what if that place was filled with just nothing but donkeys, or you know, just things like that, where I'm just kind of off in la la land, and finally I kind of come back and she's still talking. I'm like, I have no idea what she said, and then she looks at me for response, and in that moment I can do one of two things, right? I can act like I know what was said, and shake my head, make something up. Sometimes it works, most of the time it doesn't, or I can apologize and say, hey, I wasn't really listening. Would you be gracious enough to say it again in the hopes that I don't start looking off in la-la land again? Or I could listen, listen. 
I not only engage in the moment with what my wife is saying, which, guess what, is beneficial to my marriage. Actually, this act of active listening and, or effectual listening is uh, good for every relationship that we have. It's the problem is, is so often we're either not listening or we're just listening so that we can respond with what we want to respond with. You see, when I really listen, when I'm not just a hearer, but I hear so that I might respond and do, I can actually act upon what I'm hearing You see, it's this type of hearing of the word of God that leads us to becoming the effectual doers that we're called to be. You see, when we look intently and listen to God's word, we move from being forgetful hearers to effectual doers. And man, this is what we are commanded to become. And so if you want to see, and I shared this a couple of weeks ago, if you want to see your walk with Jesus grow, you must both listen and do. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with myself or with others. And the response is, well, I just want God to do this. I'm like, okay, well, but are you walking in obedience to what he's already called you to? And they're like, well, no. Like, are you reading the scriptures? Well, no. Well, then what do you expect? You're, you're, You're not walking in faithfulness to what he's already called you to. Why do you expect something else? So we have to be a people, we have to grow as a people that both listen and do. We're not just hearers, but we're doers. And again, the first thing that that takes is we must be in God's Word. Because that's where we find transformation. If you, uh, if you join us beginning next week, every September we start a value series where we, uh, man, we spend some time talking about what we value as a church. And so our mission or vision statement is Center Church seeks to be good neighbors to Brenham. By joyfully displaying the good news of Jesus in every part of life. And then the question becomes, what does that even mean? And so we're going to look at four for four weeks at various things that we want to be about as a church. And week one is that we want to be a people that are biblically transformed. That we want to be a people that, that not only see the Bible as, as something that is to be read and is historical fact, but that it is actually good news that changes our lives. And so not only do we have to be a people of the word, I, I shared with y'all a couple of weeks ago, man, I think uh, if we're honest, we're going to have to cut out some other voices, right? If we're going to see the transformation, we're going to be active listeners that listen to God's word first and actually respond to that in action and obedience. There's probably going to be some other voices we're going to have to cut out because they're drowning out what God is trying to do. And then lastly, we're going to have to go and walk in obedience. You see, if we want to see this church fulfill the work that God has called us to do, we collectively must encourage one another to not simply show up and hear the word, but to obey the word. James ends chapter 1 by saying, hey, if you really want to pursue holiness, which is verse 27, that goes against the grain of the world. He says, man, uh, you're, you're going to have to pursue this and it, and it looks vastly different than anything that the world will tell you. It's caring for those in need. It's it's pursuing a holiness that is only found by God's grace. And so with this out in front of us, I want us to look now at the, the, the really the first case study that James is going to lay out on what it means not just to be a hearer of the word, but a hearer that acts in obedience. Let's read the first seven verses of James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Okay, so to begin our time in this portion of James, I want everyone just to take a moment, just to yourself, uh, to listen, listen. But I want you to kind of move into that imaginative space. And I want you to think back on your time in elementary school, middle school, maybe even junior high, mostly probably elementary where this formation really took place whenever you were in PE class. So for me, it was Coach Hall, Clifton Elementary School, Right. And every Friday we were playing dodgeball and I lived for P.E. But as you think about your time in P.E., I want you to think about when it came time to put together teams for whatever was taking place that day. And as you think about that, what's the worst case scenario in that moment? This is where you all respond. Yeah, getting picked last, right? Like every elementary school kid, as soon as it's like, hey, we're going to pick teams, you know, you're just like, everybody just starts to clam up, no matter how confident you are, because it's like, I can't be last, right? Any, let little Billy be last, you know, let someone trip while we form lines so that it gives me an advantage. We've all experienced that. And then on the one hand, I blame the coaches. I blame our PE teachers because essentially they were teaching us to shame others by placing value on their ability to ac- accurately throw or dodge a, a spinning rubber ball. Like that's essentially what they were doing. But also, like, why would you ever give kids that kind of power? It's too much. Like the president doesn't even have that kind of power, okay? Like you should not give a third grader that much authority. It's not going to go well for anyone. They are going to rule with an iron fist. But that's all of our experiences. Man, when you think of those moments, favoritism and partiality, it was rampant. And it wasn't always athletic prowess. Like sometimes, like I know for me, like if I was the one picking, man, I wanted to pick people I wanted to be friends with. And they're popular, so man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick them first because I want them to be on my team because I want them to like me. You picked your favorites. You picked your best friends But oftentimes it was those that maybe were less athletic, maybe those you didn't like, maybe those that uh, weren't seen, uh, maybe they were seen in a wrong light and you allowed them to be last. Maybe, you know, I think we all probably experienced moments where we were the last one picked. But as we think about that, not a lot has changed. We've just changed the mechanisms and systems by which we go about it. And we struggle with favoritism and partiality, do we not? I mean, just think about it. Like, that's why, like, 
We, man, in our culture, celebrities and the rich are worshipped. Like, we've already talked about, like, even in James's time period, like, he's already talked about, like, hey, you think riches will fix your problems. They're not going to. But yet what we do is we put the rich and the wealthy in this box and say, hey, man, they have to be esteemed highly. Man, celebrities are esteemed like no one else. Like, you follow them. Uh, you know, you buy what they're selling on TV, do you not? And you know how, like, when you do that, like, they're saying, hey, you should buy this. It's not that they've bought it. They're getting paid to tell you that. Or they're getting it for free. And yet we go out and we're like, oh, they must really love it. Who knows if they do or not. But we'll go out and get it. We want to be like them. We want to be around them. We, we tend to puff them up. But it doesn't just start there. Like, we do this with education, Right? Like partiality comes in terms of, man, someone that uh, is uh, that dropped out of school, we see them as less than someone has a GED. Someone that has a GED is less than someone that has an actual diploma. You know, uh, uh, and then from there, you know, associate is not as good as a bachelor's or a master's. And then if you can go all the way, like you can be a doctor for anything. And man, those people that are doc if you're a doctor in the room, like I'm not hating on you, but this is just what I see. I'm not a doctor. Uh, man, they, they will put that doctor name out there. And I'm like, dude, you're a doctor of history, okay? Like, you can't fix my broken arm, okay? Like, you know, that, but they, it's that, it's that prestige and like they want people to know because they want to be esteemed and we allow it. We do this with the way people dress. We've seen it throughout history with ethnicity and culture. Uh, man, at, at times, like, people will, uh, just to, to, to hone it in even a little more in our own lives, like, uh, man, people will show uh, uh, partiality to inanimate things, like their jobs. And they'll choose that over their spouse and their children. They'll go after these things because really what they're after is their own self-fulfilling purpose and identity. And we do this in the church. Like many base their decisions around where they go to church in terms of favoritism and partiality. We don't call it that. We just call it preferences though, right? We have a preaching preference. We have a worship preference. We have uh, a gathering preference. We have all these things. And I'm not saying any of them, man, they might be good things. And yet at times, like what we will decide to do is we, if we're honest, and this is across the board, but specifically in the church, we want the glamour of the easy. But man, what if God has called you to a place that you might not be partial to so that he might use you to be a part of its formation and flourishing. Man, when you've thought about church and thought about being a part of a church, man, if you pray like, God, will you send me to a place that I can pour myself out? Is that your first prayer? Or is it, man, God, I really need a place that has this, this, and this. And then maybe I'll do something. Like, that's the reality, though. And, and, and we run to those things. We're a megachurch culture. Guess what? This isn't a megachurch, okay? <laughs> but that's like, by and large, like, I remember, like, the guy, that, the pastor that I look up to the most is a guy named Matt Chandler. And I remember when his church was really taken off, they, there were people, they found out were driving an hour plus to go to their church. They were doing, like, seven services, 
And he would say this, and he was like, look, if you're driving that far, we're turning people away that live close. Don't come back here. And what he would tell him is, it's just just because you're partial to what we're doing here. He's like, no, go and pour yourself out where you're at. Like, and if I'm honest, like, you know, if you're a part of, ever a part of our new, new partners class, uh, which is coming up, we'll have an announcement here shortly. Uh, one of the things we say is that when we felt called to plant here in Brenham, Haley and I, when we felt called to plant, we said where? And God said Brenham, and we said no. Because we were partial to more restaurants, to more things to do, right? You know, part of it was like, Haley's like, I'm from here. I don't want to, no. Like, I, let's, you know, and I was like, yeah, let, let's, let's go to the Austin area or something. And we, and God kept saying, no, I have a work for you here. And man, it, it took repentance. It took us finally saying, okay, we'll pour ourselves out here. And man, I, I can honestly tell you there are many days where I'm like, God, really? Like I'm coaching soccer this fall and I got home and I was like, Haley, like I, like I just wanted to crawl under the desk. Like I just, like I, I just look around. I'm like, I'm. Sometimes I don't feel like like people like we're even alike at all. And she's like, Well, you're more alike than you think. But this is where God's called me. And man, I have to continually lay that down. But man, I want y'all to know, like, and this is not just for me. Like this is. This is even pre-COVID and pre-shutdown and pre-everything else that happened in that year we don't talk about. Right? And do you know how hard it is to week in and week out find yourself wrestling with people's preferences? And having to get up here and hope, man, I hope I don't say the wrong thing. I hope... I say the right thing. I, man, I, you know, I hope I don't talk about masks too much or too little. You know, I hope I don't talk about, man, I better not talk about politics or I, I better make sure that I'm saying it this way or that the, the, you know, the music sounds a certain way and our kids thing looks a certain way. And, and because, man, people are partial. Man, I wonder, what if we just continue to pray, God, man, you send me, let me pour my life out. You see, it's the same struggle applies to those that James is writing to. See, they, like us, struggle with longings for things that they think will satisfy or at least bring comfort to their needs. And in doing so, they're being threatened with the temptation to be partial to the rich over the poor. It's the case of what you have versus what you want. You see, they have identity in Christ, and yet, man, they want these other things because they think it'll make them comfortable. They want to escape. You see, faith, faith that produces action that James is calling us to is in no way compatible with favoritism. You see, we show partiality in how we perceive and give value to those around us. And the way we do that is largely based on external means. And so James gives this word picture and he says, look, if you were at a banquet or a party and man, you see this guy walk in and he's, you know, he's just blinged out, got the rings on, got the the nicest tux on. He drove the nicest car here like he you, you know, he has means. 
And at the same time, right after him, you see a guy walk in and his clothes are shabby. They're falling off. He doesn't smell well. He might be a little drunk. And yet, and you see both of those guys come in. He says, you know, your natural tendency is to do what? Is to go straight for the rich guy and say, okay, you come sit over here. Is to put the rich in the high place. And really, I think if we're honest, we would maybe even go further and say, hey, poor person, you got to get out of here. This is, this is not the place for you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like, you ever gone to a banquet and seen how a banquet functions? Like, Broom, Texas is the king of banquets, okay? <laughs> like they have a training center that's just like every week it's like banquet, banquet, banquet. And if, it's, if you can't do a banquet, what do you do? You do a drive through meal. Which I had never experienced until I moved here. And now I love it. Because I'm like, yes! Like, you know, we don't have to cook tonight. Like, let's just drive through and get it. But when you walk into a banquet, man, how's the... I I encourage you, next time you go, look at how the seating's arranged. Where do the people that pay the most sit? They sit in the front. (laughs) They sit in the center. But but even the people that pay the same amount just for tables, I, I would argue that they're probably strategically placed in different spots based on the value that those hosting the banquet think they might bring. You see, James states that doing this is not simply a light issue. He says this is a sin that must be dealt with if the church is not simply to be hearers of the word but doers. For when we show partiality by placing others in places strictly based on means and not the heart. What he says, he says, you become a judge that has evil thoughts. What he means by evil thoughts there is that your motives are self-serving. Then in verse 5, following this descriptor, he, he calls us, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, which shows us two things. One, man, James is very serious. He's doing what Jesus did, like truly, truly, like listen, listen. Get your mind out of whatever you're thinking about over here. And man, listen to what I'm saying. And he calls them beloved brothers. You know, see, James loves those to whom he's writing. He loves them deeply. And so even though he might be having to rebuke them and exhort them and admonish them, he wants them to know, man, I love you and I want you to listen to me because you know I love you. And it leads to his argument regarding the heart which God chooses in two ways. And and we see it all throughout Scripture. God's Word over and over again reveals that partiality is not conducive to life in the kingdom. If you look at Matthew 5, Jesus says, Man, blessed are the what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. He uses the poor of the world to be the rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. You cannot buy your way into heaven. And if you look at the Gospels, Jesus talks about money and the problem of riches more than anything else. He actually says that it makes entering the kingdom very difficult. As difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle. What James is arguing here is that the poor, and he's specifically talking monetarily, he, he says they have an advantage when it comes to life in the kingdom. Is he saying that, uh, that, uh, that they're the only ones that can get saved? No. Because again, to worldly standards, we're all very rich. 
What he's saying, though, is that whenever you focus on things other than monetary means and external means, you become more dependent on God than you are with what you have and the status that it brings. The Apostle Paul shares the same call in 1 Corinthians 1. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not, not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, at the end of the day, it matters not whether you're rich or poor by the standards of the world. Because all, every single person, regardless of wealth, we are all on the same level when it comes to our brokenness and need. The rich and the poor all must move in dependence to the foot of the same cross. All must receive the same grace. And so it is spiritually irrational James says, to discriminate or show favoritism in this way. What he's saying, he's saying, look, I don't care how much money you have, how much status you have, none of you are first round picks in the kingdom. Like, if if Jesus was going to pick teams solely based on the external means, none of us are getting in. And yet, he came and he gave himself up. Because Jesus is not after the external, He's after our hearts. He sacrificed. He became low. And I love what Jesus says, man, the first will be last and the last shall be first. He says, if you really want to, want to man, make your, like, be a part of the kingdom, He says, man, you're going to have to be a servant of all. And he doesn't just say it, He models it. The night of his betrayal, he takes off his outer garment and he gets on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet, even the one that was going to betray him. He says, the things I've done, you go do for others. It's spiritually irrational. But not only is it spiritually irrational, it's also socially irrational to do this. But because those that, that, that James is writing to, the, the very people that they are esteeming are the people that are taking them into court. It's the people that are blaspheming in the name of God. He's saying, look, like you're being irrational. You're, you're esteeming the, those that are you're in, acting like your enemies. You're being partial towards them. It's a crazy cycle. But again, it's us. We fall into the same crazy cycle of what I term as hero worship. When it comes to the rich and the famous. Man, I'm blown away by the reality that we will forgive men and women of status for continual unrepentant sin over and over and over again as if it never happened while in the same moment condemning the homeless and needy for the brokenness that might have caused their need. Because they don't have the status. The court system does it, right? But like we do it as well. We do it even in the church. So I've been listening to this podcast recently called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is about this guy named Mark Driscoll that started a church called Mars Hill that was like 15,000 people. And it's this picture of this meteoric rise and man, there's just this burnout crash fall. 
And it's a phenomenal podcast. It's Christianity Today has put it together. It's not one that I would necessarily listen to with kids uh, because of some of the things it shares. But man, you just see this picture. And one of the things that stuck out to me is that during its meteoric rise, uh, this, this pastor, what he said, he said, it doesn't matter what I do and it doesn't matter what I say because you just need to look at the fruit. And man, people just said, yeah. So he would say whatever he wanted. He would do whatever he wanted. And people were like, it's fine. We got thousands of people coming to this church. And now in the wreckage of it, it, it went down overnight. People have deconstructed their faiths. And what we find is that he just moved on to a new place and is doing the same thing. People flock to it. And guess what? They would blatantly look down on others. I heard one pastor that planted a church there say when they were going to plant, I don't know which pastor it was, but a pastor on the staff came and said, look, if you plant a church here, we will tear your church down brick by brick. But Jesus calls us to a totally different way of living. You see, Jesus saw everyone as they really are. External riches meant nothing to him, nor did the shabby dress of the poor. The reason being, and we should hear this and live in light of it, is Jesus was after what was in the heart, not what the person wore. Well, what if we took time to consider the heart first? And so with this laid out, let's continue with this argument against partiality by looking at verses 8 through 13. It says this, if you really fulfill the law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so James, if you haven't picked up on it already, is what some would call a practical theologian or a moral theologian. James is more concerned and cares more for the authenticity of your faith that produces action rather than simply what you claim to believe with words. And so in light of this argument against partiality, he says, look, if you really want to fill, fulfill the royal or decreed law according to God's word, he says, you have to do this. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when looking at the law, and what I mean by the law is the Ten Commandments, it, it, really the law can be summarized in two commands. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Some call this the, 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 the vertical law between you and God and the horizontal law. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are the law, the vertical law. It's our in relationship with God. This is the law we are to follow. And then five through ten is horizontal law. This is how we interact with one another. And James says, if you're specifically fulfilling the horizontal law, you are doing well. But there's a problem with that. And James knows there's a problem because no one aside from Jesus has perfectly done this. 
You see, while we are called to fulfill the royal law or the law of the kingdom, we quickly run to the law of self. And the law of self is partial to two things. First, the law of self is partial to those we esteem to be. Which is why we have, you know, we worship celebrity, be a pastor or person or businessman or woman or whatever it is. Like we'll run after those things because we esteem to be that. But secondly, and I believe more importantly, my law is always going to be partial to me first and foremost. The reality of showing favoritism to others while it might look to give others value is always self-serving so that we might give ourselves value, identity, and status that only the gospel can truly give. And so when looking at partiality or favoritism, what we have to understand is that it is a violation of the horizontal law when it comes to our calling to love our neighbor as ourselves. And James is saying, hey, this isn't a small thing. And the reason we know it's not a small thing is because he says, look, uh, he, he describes it as the, 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 the to break one part is to break it all. You cannot, concl- com- you cannot claim fulfillment of vertical law between you and God if you are breaking law horizontally. But we try our darndest. <laughs> we will say, oh, I love God, but we hate our neighbor. And again, I don't... I, Yes, literal neighbor, but it goes deeper than that. Read the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan was the one that was despised, and yet he says, no, that guy's even, he was the good neighbor. We are to love even those we don't agree with. That's the kind of love we're to have. We're to love even our enemies. Why? Because we were enemies of God. And yet He loved us. You see, partiality, James argues, is on the same level. He he describes it. He he talks about murder and adultery. See, real faith is not indicated solely by avoiding the big sins like murder and adultery, but by how we treat others, especially the needy. Man, today, what's your attitude and heart towards others? Today, do you favor the privileged? Today, do you favor those who can pull themselves up or those who cannot? And I encourage you to remember the gospel. That we are none of those things. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We only find life through Jesus. And He willingly came and died. So that we might have that life, which is why James finishes this portion of text the way he does. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. These words speak and act, really it's a it's a continual. He's like, hey, keep speaking and keep acting. In light of God's grace and the reality of the judgment to come for which the believer, while they will be judged, that we will be set free Because of the liberty that comes by way of the cross. Therefore may our lives now, today, exemplify this eternal freedom by how we speak and act towards others here and now. 
May those who are free live freely, meaning that we can give and sacrifice our position, wealth, and status for those in need because our position, our true wealth, and the only status that matters is found in a person, not in what we can produce. And so in turn, may we show mercy in light of the mercy that we've received. For mercy triumphs over judgment. And in today's culture, I believe that we would do well as a countercultural kingdom that exudes mercy instead of judgment. There's enough finger pointing going on. There's enough judgment going around. And man, sadly, much of it comes by way of those who claim to follow Jesus. But our calling is to be merciful towards others in light of what we have received, the mercy we have received. And what mercy means is to enter into others' need through speech and action. It's to proclaim the good news and it's to act in light of the good news. And so I'm going to have Brett come back up and, um, and we're going to have some time to respond and uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and share in communion. You'll grab one of the cups has bread in it. The other one uh, has the juice. You can grab one of each when you're ready and we're going to sing. But, man, I want to invite you to spend some time just responding uh, to this text. And, man, maybe just some of the questions you need to think about is, man, where are you showing favoritism? Today, how might or where might you need to speak and act differently? Where have you gotten your priorities wrong? What are you running to? What are you esteeming higher than that which is the only thing worthy of our esteem, uh, esteem which is God's glory and His name? And then lastly, how might you begin to practically engage those in need? Say, hey, I've got a need. I'm going to practically meet it. We got to experience this in a really neat way, you know, last week or a couple of weeks ago when we were on lockdown. Uh, we got a text message that said, hey, how are y'all doing? And we said, well, we're, we're doing fine. We're just in lockdown and uh, in quarantine. And, and they said, OK, uh, we'll be delivering food shortly. And I mean, we weren't really like we had food, but a box of like a meal for every day showed up to our house. And we we're like, oh man, like, praise God, like, thank you. And, and, and man, like, I think for us, like, we, man, oftentimes because we're so consumed with where we need to get, we either run over others or we just forget about others along the way. But man, we are called to be a people that say, and how can I engage others' needs in practical ways? And so I want to invite you to pray. I want to encourage you to sing and worship. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to come share in communion. But may we be a people that as Jesus, that we would see the heart first. That that's what we would be after. Because that's what He's after. God, we thank You for seeing our hearts and God, I thank you even more that you see our hearts and you don't run away, but you run towards our brokenness so that you might heal it. That you became a servant of all. 
Lord, I pray in light of that, that, that God, that we would be so gripped by that and transformed by that, that it would uh, change the way we view others, that we would see people uh, as made in your image, that we would see them to have value, that we would uh, not look at external means, and, uh, and yet we would look to the heart and what you are calling us to do and proclaiming through word and deed this good news. May it, may it first get in our hearts and then exude in obedience. And as we do it, may others be transformed and changed by it, by your grace and mercy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.